about, we're in this series called Unleash the Impossible, talking about all the ways in which God might do something, not just to us or at us or in us, but through us. And, and we've been saying this is, came out of a leadership conversation we had with a bunch of our, our key leaders and volunteers and stuff, and we just kind of said, what would it look like if God unleashed the impossible through us into this community, and what would that look like? And it's been a great, great series, and sort of guiding us in that conversation has been this passage in John 14, says this, John 14, 12, very truly I tell you, Whoever believes in me, this is Jesus speaking, will do the works I've been doing. Now remember, he's doing all kinds of amazing stuff. And they will do even greater things than these. So Jesus has done all these great things, and he tells his disciples, you're going to do even more than that. It's going to be more shocking than just those things. Whatever you once imagined, what you're going to be doing, he tells his disciples, you are entrusted with the work of the ministry I already began, and it's going to be even bigger and broader and more shocking, which means there's some kind of continuation of that project which God, God has already begun. So the implications of that idea are the basis of this series. That Jesus has begun something which we get to be a part of completing it, or at least being a part of some kind of that continuation of that project. So it's been very, very cool. Lots of great responses from a lot of you. A lot of things people are wrestling with, asking great questions. And so very excited to get into today. Um, so let's pray and we'll, we'll jump right in. Father, we have um, so so much for which to be grateful. Father, we, if, if that's the only thing we were able to do today, that would be a great work, that we might find a way to be uh, grateful. Jesus, in so many ways, it's kind of a weird thing that you've entrusted us with this project you initiated in your ministry, because we know us. Jesus, we have brokenness, we have heartache, we have sorrow, we have loneliness, we have a past. We have regrets, and yet you choose somehow to use us. And you've entrusted us with something to do. And so, Father, today, might we understand that we have an opportunity for a joy-filled participation. Because we have already been hope-filled recipients of your great love. Jesus, for those of us who come in restless, tired, anxious, lonely, fearful, whatever that might look like. And for those of us who come in sort of on the opposite end of the spectrum, in either case, would you reveal yourself today in a very real and powerful and tangible way. So, Father, for just a moment, we pause that you might speak to us in the stillness and the silence. Speak to us. Father, we come before you, and that's so we might see you more clearly and see ourselves more clearly and better. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, now, if you want to follow along, there is an outline in your bulletin. You can pull that out, take a look at it. If you want to follow along on the screen, everything will need to be on the screen. Um, if you want to turn in your Bible, it'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, mostly. So you can go there if you want to do that as well. Um, but uh, uh, I do have to tell you, I want to, I want to warn you a little bit. So you can brace yourselves for what's going to happen. This is going to be two things. One, it will be a little bit of a challenge. Like, I'm going to ask you to stay with me, like, extra coffee, kind of stay with me the whole time. Because I promise I will make, this will make sense at the very end. But the middle of it, you're going to be going, this is just too early for him. He's thinking about not surfing again. And there he is, just not, that's what he's thinking about. Just trust me on that. The second thing is, the content of what we're going to talk about today is challenging. And I'm not afraid of the challenge. I just want you to know, you can brace yourself, put your seatbelts on, whatever you need to do. It, it is going to be a bit challenging, and I, I'm t I totally welcome that. In most cases, when I talk to people, 
they tend to say, I'm really grateful for that challenge. I just want you to know, be prepared. What you're going to hear today is going to be a little bit of a like, whoa, really? Okay, here we go. This is serious. This is like, this, there you go. Everybody cool with that? If you're not cool with a little bit of a challenge, we can see afterwards. Hang out in the patio. No one will know. You know, whatever. So anyway, here we go. Uh, this week, um, there were three people who won the, the lottery. $564 million. That is the power of all the, you know, the giant super lottery, you know, and it's 564. On Tuesday when I was preparing the message, uh, it was it was at 485, and then by the time it, it got claimed, it was 564 million dollars. Three people won it. You know, there is like, which you know, those people who all won it were like, you know, they all thought, why do I have to share this? You know, they thought that. You know, there's none, and it was like, it's so great we can split this three ways. Three people get to be blessed by this. No, no, they were like, oh, if only I had half a billion dollars for myself. You know, that's what they all thought. But, um, you know, there's inevitably, whenever someone wins a big lottery, there's all kinds of news outlets and all kinds of stuff where they do articles about what happens to people when they win the lottery. That there's like, basically, this, the story is eerily similar in most cases, which is like this. People win, in, you know, a huge amount of money. They do a couple things. The first thing they do is everybody quits whatever they're doing. Like, they, whatever it is that they're doing, they're like, I'm done with that. They say things to their boss that they've always wanted to say. And then they go on their yacht and do whatever. They just like, I quit everything. And what's crazy is the, the trend isn't just they quit their, their jobs. They also start quitting relationships and people because they've like, I've got everything and I don't need you. It just sort of starts happening down this sort of carousel of this stuff. Then, un, I mean, it's like unbelievable how many people who win the lottery go bankrupt. They just imagine, I have this endless supply of money. I can do whatever I want. So I'm just going to spend, spend, spend. Well, it doesn't even matter. This is, I have so much money. I can do whatever. And they inevitably go bankrupt. And then the third thing is this. That all of their relationships are compromised. All of their friendships, their distant third cousin, whatever, starts coming out and going, you know, really, do you really need that much money? Can I have, and everybody starts angling to try to get their money because they believe they're a part of it. And, and, and in the comments section of these articles that talk about all of these effects, it is, what's surprising is there's like, Almost nobody who goes, you know what, there's no, there's no like sober realization about the like negative impact of winning the lottery. Like, you know, and that's just, that is sad. So I'm never telling, it's all this. The whole, all the comments are basically, you know what I would do if I won the lottery? I mean, the whole article is your life will be ruined. And everybody's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know what I would do if I won the lottery? The entire comment section. There is, and it's not all selfish stuff. I mean, it's like, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll help my family and do some charity work and I'll give, you know, some money away and I'll be this awesome person. And, and the fantasy, that despite, all these, all, it, despite all these odds, it, it looks like this. Let me just give you the sense of what these odds, just give you a sense of put odds in perspective here for winning this thing. So the odds of dating a supermodel. I don't know who calculated this. This is from the LA Times. The odds of dating a supermodel are one in 880,000. So you're going to call up, you know, Tom Brady and say, does your wife know anybody that she might want me to hook me up with? There's your odds, okay? You're not handsome enough, okay? Number two, the odds of having an 11th toe are 1 in 500, which means somebody in here has an 11th toe. <laughs> that one guy at the beach wearing his shoes. I know I'm going to get an email from the person with an 11th toe. You don't, I know. I am sorry. I just... It's like the six-fingered man from the, you know, Princess Bride, you know? Maybe you're awesome. Okay, maybe you're really good with a sword if you hold it in your foot. Okay. <laughs> the odds of being of death by asteroid, 1 in 700,000. Now, I want you to understand, that seems incredibly, like, really scary to me. I just want you to know this. 
the comparison between dating a supermodel and being hit by an asteroid. So, <laughs> you have a better shot of death by asteroid <laughs> than dating a supermodel. So, if you are dating a supermodel, which I know, husbands, you're all saying, like you, my wife, you are, and I, the odds, you probably need a titanium umbrella or something because you are in big trouble. Now, all of those things, there's all kinds of these bizarre odds, but I want to show you the odds of winning the, the lottery. One in 176 million. Let me just go back to the previous slide. Look at these crazy things. Look at this one crazy thing right here. And three people managed to get that. And you just go, well, see, that's just, I should do this. This is something I should do all the time and believe in. And like, this is something I should do. Now, there's this really odd thing that happens. Because when we start thinking about the lotto, we start thinking about super lotto. I mean, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars. We start thinking about this fantasy, what we would do. In fact, I may have lost every, all of you. I mean, like, there's a lot of you in here like, all I'm going to do the rest of my time is doodle the things I'd buy on my notes. I get it. For those of you who are still with me, the real fantasy in the lottery isn't just the, the amount of money. There's something else in there. It looks like this. The fantasy, the real dream at the heart of the lottery is this. To spend or give, we can give that credit as well, to spend or give with absolutely, absolutely no negative impact on my lifestyle. That I could do whatever, I could do crazy stuff. I could buy or give or I could bless people, but my entire life would stay exactly the same. Whatever, whatever new stature of my life, I, whether I decide to join the SpaceX program or whatever else I'm deciding to do, spend all kinds of money, whatever it is, I want to be able to spend and have it have no impact on my life. So there is a word for that in the Bible, or I guess it's sort of a concept in the Bible, the official rendition, margin. Margin. Meaning, I have so much excess. I can do whatever I want, and it will not have any negative impact on the way that I live. There's a great story years ago of Shaquille O'Neal, you know, the, the famous basketball player, who, you know, he was, this is at a time when he, they, the NBA had to, like, change the, the defensive rules to figure out ways to stop this guy, because nobody could defend him. And he was unbelievably wealthy, he was on the Lakers, which is like, everything was great as far as I was concerned with that, and he's like, they're winning championships. It's amazing. And a guy joins the team, this, this guy who was kind of this awkward guy who kind of made a name for himself because he was so awkward, but a hardworking guy named Mark Madsen. Mark Madsen, Mad Dog, some of you guys know that. Mark Madsen joins the team, and he shows up. He's a rookie. He shows up to the team driving his mom's minivan because that's all he had. And he was making the league minimum and felt no need to have any kind of other car, and he's kind of a sensible, kind of head-on-straight guy. And Shaq goes, Shaquille O'Neal goes, there's nobody on my team that could be driving their mom's minivan. And probably said, well, nobody on my team, you know, how he talks like that. <laughs> so after practice, the story goes that he went over to a Ford dealership and said, we have to buy you an Expedition because I can't have you driving a minivan to practice. You're just, like insulting the team. So Shaq buys this, this car for this rookie. And the idea is we go, gosh, Shaq is so generous. And he is. That's a really generous act. But this, there's a question mark behind that kind of next to that, a little asterisk, which is, Shaq bought, let's say he bought the top-of-the-line expedition in the late 90s, early 2000s. That's probably $50,000 at the most. Maybe. Probably way less than that, but we'll just give him, we'll just say he had custom rims put on at that moment. But all of a sudden, Shaq, but there is absolutely zero impact on Shaq's life. He doesn't say to himself, man, I wish I had that 50000 back so I could hang out in my 64,000 square foot, you know, house in Florida, which is also, it mirrors the house I have in whatever other, he doesn't, there's no real impact because he has so much margin. That's the real fantasy when we start talking about something like 
the, the whole, the, the, the idea of a lotto, a giant super lottery like that, is that we would have margin. It's not just that we could afford things, it's that we could afford things and we could buy stuff and we'd not have to think about it. We'd just see all of this excess and it's so great. And the question is, is, you know, is it generous that, you know, Jack went and buys a car that looks generous? But is that the same exact kind of generosity we see in the Bible? Is it the, sa- is it the same kind of thing? Is, it that, is this the way that the Bible describes generosity? And there's a story that um, the Apostle Paul is kind of recounting to the, the church in Corinth. And he's telling these guys in the church in Corinth, he's telling them, you know, you guys, I want you to hear a story about this other church and what they're doing about generosity. And Paul has this, you know, he's, he's, the church in Corinth has been taking money up, taking up money as an offering, along with other churches that Paul's inviting to, to give money to the church in Jerusalem because they're really suffering. There's like all kinds of poverty. They're like, we got to figure out a way to help this church because they're suffering. So Paul uses the example to the Corinthian church, stay with me, about the Macedonian church. And he says, look at these guys. Look how they give. I want you to see generosity. Now, the way this is written is absolutely shocking. It's so bizarre, and it's such, the language is so incredibly strong. This is kind of why I need you to wear a seatbelt to hear this, because it is crazy. So check this out. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Now, this, the idea of the grace that God's given the Macedonian churches. Grace, literally, it's hard to describe in this context, but basically it's like, this is, the, it's not quite blessing, but it's even more than it's like the favor that God has poured out on these churches in Macedonia. Now, what comes next is like, that doesn't feel like grace, but look what he says. In the midst of a very severe trial, this is talking about the Macedonian church, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty, now notice, these two things in our own lives, I don't know if I've ever seen them go together. Overflowing joy and extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. These people have a situation. God's grace is upon them in the midst of severe trial and extreme poverty. Now, for myself, if I'm facing extreme poverty, if I'm under severe trial, I would count that in no way as a means by which God is going to deliver some kind of favor in my life. I mean, that's me. I go, God, you have to do something because of the trial and this extreme poverty. And yet, there's this overflowing joy and rich joy. It's almost like trial sort of leads to joy and poverty leads to generosity, which is absolutely insane. This is an impossible picture that God is painting. You know, there's this thing that happens to people, we find out in these churches. I was recently able to see that there is, and over and over again, you see this, that what people tend to say, well, let me put this way, wealth and generosity by percentage of income are inversely proportional. In other words, people will often say, one day I will, I will give away all kinds of stuff when I have enough to give away. But what tends to happen by percentage of income for across the board, the wealthier people become, the less likely they are to give by percentage. They're going, to give more, they're going to give money, and maybe by amount they give more, but by percentage they actually give less. The poor, when times get really tough, even in the last economic downturn, the poor, people that are un, like extremely poor, under $25,000 a year, these people, their, their giving rose by percentage of income, 17%. They were like, we, we just have to give. We know what it's like to be poor. We understand that's why it is. But the rich tend to have this different kind of giving. Well, there's so much more to lose. I don't trust people with the money. I, like there's a different all kind of... And yet, here are these people in Macedonia who go, we are in extreme trial, we have poverty, and we've got to figure it out.
have, you have to. You've got to figure out how to do something. Because look at this. They get even crazier. Look at this. No one is taunting them. For I testify they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. Meaning no one came to them and said, hey, Macedonia, we know you're under extreme trial and poverty and all this kind of stuff. We'd like you to ratchet up the giving. On their own, the church said, we're gonna, we, we just got to do something about this. And you can imagine how awkward that might have even been for the church in Jerusalem, who's under probably similar trial. That all these people who are in Macedonia, who are suffering all this stuff, they're like, look at all of what these people are giving to us. That's almost like an uncomfortable level of giving. And then continuing on, verse 4, it gets even crazier. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service for the Lord's people. They're, in some translations, you have the word urgently pleaded as the word begged. They, they begged us, Paul, these guys, leaders of the church, we, can you please, please, please let us give? Which means it, there's a possibility that Paul himself is saying to the church, you guys, please stop giving. We know the need that you're facing. Please, please, please stop doing this. And they're saying, no, 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 no. Please, please, please let us give. You're under trial. We know. And it's our honor. To be, it's, our great, it's the grace God has given us to be able to give generously. That's crazy. That's insane. These people are begging to, do, begging to give. Now, I just want you to think about the last couple things you might have begged to get. <laughs> My guess is that it wasn't an opportunity for generosity. Oh, can I please, please? Can I please, 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 just myself here, it's like, can I please have, can I please, I want to have that experience, I want to, I need, I need, give me, you know, that kind of thing, right? There's that thing we all do when we're all at dinner together with someone else, and they're like, and it's like, everybody, the, the, the bill comes, and we're like, no, let me, no, me, no, me, and you're like, please don't let me pay for this, but no, please, I want to be, it's, I just, it's, oh, you're taking, okay, I was, I got my, I was, okay, I mean, you know, but I, everybody wins. That's what you want. You have to try and reach for the bill, even if you don't intend for intend to it. You want the appearance of wanting to be generous, and occasionally you do. But I'm thinking for most of us, at the core of who we are, we're not usually begging to be generous. Now, Paul is the, the guy who's writing this letter to the church in Corinth. He's, I mean, he's up against some pretty difficult. He's kind of walking in on eggshells here a little bit, because what he's actually, what he ha- he's. He's talking about generosity. He's talking about giving. He's doing all that, but he never, which is so bizarre, he never uses the word money. Now, it's not that he's not talking about money, but he knows what I know. <laughs> People in church don't want, like, can we talk about something besides that? Is there, any, is there anything else in the Bible we could talk about? I'll, anything. I'll talk about, tell me about demons. Talk about, so I just want, but don't talk about money. Just please don't talk about money. Because Paul's actually in the same situation. I don't want to talk about this stuff in such a way that makes sense, but that doesn't really, I mean, i got to figure out how do, we, how do we do this. And we look at this church and we go, they must have had great air conditioning too, which is one of the things we all think about because the air comes. But we look at a church like this in Macedonia, and the question I ask, and I'm assuming you're asking too, is what causes people to behave like this? I mean, that's such a peculiar kind of behavior. Paul identifies this peculiar because he tells his church in Corinth, he goes, look what they're doing. It's so weird. What causes people to do this? Because it's almost, in the way we understand, the way even the most basic understanding of finances, that's stupid behavior. This is really 
people. I mean, these people have this unique capacity and understanding, and it sort of seems like how they see themselves and how they see God is kind of what this is. Now, I want to tell you, I'm going to show how I think they see God. And I think it's a game changer, for the, game changer for the way that we live. Some of you may disagree with this. I realize some of you are already like, can we just go back to thinking about the odds of winning the lottery? I get that. Maybe, you know, I, I get what you're going to say. But I want to give you a sense of the most, ins- the most beautiful and crazy thing how, about how these people actually see themselves and see God. And it starts at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 2. So here's what it says. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So there's this sense right away that God has made stuff. He is making things. That what you have, this is the second creation account, the second part, Genesis 2. The first Genesis 1 is a little bit different. But Genesis 2 is literally about the history of human beings, how they began, their interaction with God, and their sort of relationship with creation. And you have that there's this biblical principle that's repeated throughout Genesis and throughout the Bible, which is this one right here. Oops, I want to, I skipped this piece. Did it in the wrong order. I'll just tell it to you, and when you see it again, act surprised, okay? The biblical principle is this. Whenever someone is the creator, they are always identified as the owner. So God, who is the creator of all of the stuff of the cosmos, is the, is the owner. Creator equals owner. That's always the principle. It's always crea- the creator is the, pr- the owner. So I'll keep reading here because I put it out of order. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. By the way, the word, the name Adam actually means kind of like, it's really similar to the Hebrew word for dirt. So if you're like looking at your husband like, kind of a dirt bag. Totally biblical. <laughs> dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So God forms this person. And breathes him to life. The word form is the word that's used to describe how pottery is made. Sort of this art project. Now then the Lord, uh, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. Again, there's this picture of pottery. Now, because I don't know what I have next, I can look at this next verse too. There we go. Surprising, right? The one who creates is the one who owns. That's a biblical principle that you see throughout the Bible. God has created. And he has made something. He has made the whole cosmos. And he makes forms like an artist. He forms a human being and breathes that human being to life. There is then this sort of picture of what God is up to, that he is bringing things to life as an artist would. You see this from Psalm 24. I just wrote this on your notes, but I thought the scripture reads it so well. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. There is then this picture of what God is up to, what he's doing, and it's beautiful and it's rich and it's powerful, but he's the owner. There is nothing in the entire cosmos that God did not create that then therefore he does not own, including human beings. Uh, uh, Later, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, and he'll write these words. For we are God's handiwork. This word, handiwork, is used, you get this in different kind of words in different translations. Sometimes it's handiwork, sometimes it's the word workmanship. One translation has the word masterpiece. We, human beings, are God's masterpiece. It was created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. In other words, you, regardless of what you may believe about yourself or what you've been told, are God's masterpiece. You may have believed in some capacity or another. You may have been told. 
you may have believed a lie. You may have a voice that still tells you in your life that you are accidental and that you are barely worth living. But here's how here's the Bible describes you. You are God's beautiful art project, handcrafted, his masterpiece. That is absolutely critical to understanding the message of Jesus Christ. And you, not only does the art that, by which you were created, not only does that art sort of just exist for the beauty of art, but there is something created for it to do. The, the biblical word for this handiwork word is just a Greek word. It's this word, poema. Looks pretty similar to another word that's kind of creative. It's in, that's the notion of the word poem itself. Poetry comes from the idea that you are God's crafted poetry. A masterpiece of creativity. A work of art. And this work of art, this poema, has something to do in the world. It isn't simply that you are just wonderful and beautiful, which you are, but there's something else that God has intended for human beings to do. There is, it's not just simply that you are a display, but there is a performance component to the art that you are. Verse 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. The word to take care of is the word shamar. It is a word that means to guard, to protect. It is, in some ways, I would say, as an artist kind of consider it, it would be mostly like this, that the, 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 the masterpiece is the curator of all of God's great artworks. So you have, remember, we're, we're talking about generosity here, but you have to understand, the way human beings ha- understand themselves, the biblical worldview is this. You are God's masterpiece, created, created in His image, to do something beautiful. And here's what it is. You are entrusted to care for something that you and I do not own. The whole world and everything in it, all of it, we simply function as curators in God's great world. In fact, you could tell the story of the downfall of human beings by them just merely misunderstanding that one point, that their role in the world is not to own things. And when they start imagining that they own stuff, it's when the world starts to get haywire. I mean, imagine a curator in an art museum. Their job isn't simply to kind of just, they don't, it's not their art. They get to talk about it. They get to put it on display. What, what curators do is they explain the beauty of the art, they put it on display, and they can tell you about the artist. They hold together this whole picture, they give you insight, and they tell the artist's story by showing his great work. That's what a curator does, but they never ha- they're never confused about the fact that they own it. It's not, they're not the artist. In fact, it would compromise the beauty of the art if they started saying, look what I did. Look what I painted. Picasso, that's actually my pen name. I mean, it's like they don't, no, no, there's actually, this, their job is simply, simply to curate God's great art. They get to curate art. And this is our same occupation. Human occupation, then, is to curate creation, not to own it. Now, presumably, now where people start to get haywire in this is when they start saying, look at all the resources I've had. I've got the things I've earned and even worked hard for. There is this really difficult thing, especially for us in America, this very individual society, where we go, mine, I earned it. I own it. To understand the ultimate human occupation, which is this curation, we must look at the ultimate human. And the ultimate human is not Adam. The ultimate human is Jesus. And you have to go, presumably there would be no better picture of what it looks like to curate 
to be, to tell God's story than Jesus himself. And in 2 Corinthians 8, remember, we're talking about generosity. Go back to the scripture. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, this is, what, this is what Paul says to his church. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. In other words, there is this picture of a human being, the ultimate picture of hum- humanity, which is always weird for us to understand, is Jesus. The perfect, fullest human is Jesus. And the depiction he gives, the story he tells about God in the world, is this. Through, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. That is to say, what Jesus did is to give everything he had for everybody else. That tells a story, that tells a picture. It paints a picture of what God is like. Paul's telling this church, look at Macedonia, look at their scene, how great they are. And he tells the church in Corinth, your model isn't even just the Macedonian. It's Jesus. And if there's some way in which we can hold Jesus as the lens about what everything else is supposed to look like when it comes to all of our life, which is generosity, then we understand it. But for most people, the lens about Jesus is always a little bit skewed or cynical. You have understood Jesus to be, because of the picture you got painted about maybe some other people who poorly curated God's work, you got a picture about him that is mostly ashamed of you, that the work that he did in you is a mistake, that in some way or another you ought to live with a constant fear of shame and guilt, whatever that might be in your life, and you have lost the picture that God himself came, that he gave himself for you, that you might have a fullness of life. scary biblical truth that Jesus tells the church right here. It's so frightening to us. At least it's frightening to me. So uncomfortable. There's a scary truth about biblical generosity. And none of us really want, I mean, there's very few of us who really want this to be good. It always involves sacrifice. You see, different than winning the lottery or the Shaquille O'Neal, Mark Madsen minivan story is that biblical generosity isn't simply giving an amount of whatever it might be, whether it's, you know, money to the poor or to just, or working hard, giving your time or whatever else it is. It's not an amount. It's that it has to involve sacrifice. So what people are looking for is often how much the people that get the plaques from the hospitals and everything else, those people give lots of money. But you have to wonder about those people that go, I just can barely part with a cup of coffee a month to give. Those people are making, that's all I can, that's all I've got. Those people are closer than the biblical definition of that. That's the story Jesus tells about a woman with his disciples. He goes into the temple to make an offering, and she gives her last to his, his, his attendants. And there's all these people in the temple who are you know, like basically having their own parade and their trumpets and blowing horns. Look at me, look at how much I'm giving and making a big scene. And Jesus says to his disciples, you see that woman who gave the, 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 all that little bit of money that makes literally no difference in the functioning of the temple itself. Who gave the greater gift? And to which his disciples are like, we don't know how to answer that question because we saw the trumpets, basically, the parade of all this money that kind of went out there. That more people are going to be helped. There's going to be all this work that's done because these super rich people gave all this stuff. And Jesus goes, it's the one who gave this little, this widow. Sometimes they put the widow's mite, her last bit. Because the biblical definition of generosity isn't how much you give. It's about sacrifice, which ties it really uniquely to faithfulness. See, there's this, there's this picture here. Because none of us, most of us, almost none of us probably feel rich. Jesus came, 
became poor so that we might be rich. And we don't have the sense of what it is like to feel rich because what we imagine is rich equals margin. Rich equals all the margin in the world. I remember when I was a first, I told the story, maybe the people who came to church before. Um, when I was in um, right out of high school, I was working in Disneyland. I was a bus boy at the Blue Bayou. You guys, you know, I mean, some of you guys know what that is. It's a very big deal. Uh, but I was a bus boy. And I got paid in $1 bills. Uh, you know, I got paid, but then I also got my $1. I got $1 in tips, like $1 from the, the waiters and waitresses all tip, tip out at the very end of the thing. And I was, you know, I had like just 35 $1 bills in my wallet. I mean, I could barely hold it. It was so great. And I had to do, I, I, my expenses were so incredibly low. I lived at my house. I had a Hyundai Excel. I had rear mud flaps, which is a custom thing I added. Um, <laughs> if you need those. Uh, but I had, I, I, dro- I, drove to, I drove to work, and I worked all, I worked in the day, and then I came home, and I had, I had plenty of money to do, to go surfing, to buy Del Taco. What else did I need? I was rich. I had so much margin. And it's the rest of my life, ever since, and I've never had that same, ex- I've never had that kind of margin in my life. As I, did. I was rich when I was 18 years old. Oh, man, who wants a $1 bill? You know, I was like, woo! I mean, that's rich. And we, the, the re, like, remember, the fantasy about the idea of the lottery is that we'll have all this excess, so then we can be generous. But biblical generosity is so different than that. I know I lie a lot. I mean, it's not like I don't live in the world you live in. People always assume that I live, like, in a little capsule. Like, I just disappear into a little bubble in the ground, and I just kind of live underground and sort of, like, sort of Jesus shelter or something like that, you know? I live in the real world. And I get it because we're spent. All, all of our, whatever margin we already have is, we have none. We can't even imagine, we, the, the margin's the greatest fantasy because we already have none. Because everything we already have is already spent. Our whole lives, relationally, emotionally, physically, financially, we're all, it seems like our entire life is in debt. And we go, I'm already spent, I have nothing else to give. I live in that same world, you guys. I, it's not, I mean, it's not like I live in a different world than you do. My wife and I, Amanda and I sit down and we go, okay, this is what this means. If, if Molly keeps moving it forward in her gymnastics club, what does that mean for the other kids or for us? Or for, we, we all think about these kinds of things that you do. What does it mean if we start, if for us, you know, we're looking at our, our future, we're doing our finances, we're going, this is what these things mean down the road. All of that stuff, we look at and we go, how, how do we be generous, not just in our relationships, but in our, in, in our serving or whatever else. How can we help, how, we can, how can we continue to be generous with people? Because it's hard. It's so hard. Like I said, Paul spends two chapters speaking about generosity, and he never once mentions, he never once mentions the other. He mentions the word money because he knows how unbelievably difficult it is. Because all of us are emphasis on every single person here, and it's more elusive than the lottery itself. More, the one thing more elusive than winning, more than one in 176 million is this one thing. It's, it's more elusive than anything else, and none of us, I'd say very few of us. Maybe, the, maybe if you have an 11th toe, you figure this out. This right here. I mean, my gosh, is it hard to find that. My gosh, is it so hard to find that. You don't know when you have enough. We constantly look at ourselves, and again, I'm speaking for myself. I know this is different for you. I always wonder when I'm going to have enough. Where, do I have enough here? Can we do the things we need to do? I don't know if we're going to have enough. I don't know if I want to give here. I don't know if I want to participate in that. Or I don't know whatever it might be because I don't think there'll be enough. 
And this is the most difficult thing for to understand. And it's really, honestly, when you start talking, probably people that have a better chance of understanding this are people that are at the very end of their life. So they start going, what really constitutes enough? They start getting a picture for what it actually means and what it looks like. And we start thinking about that. We start going, I wonder what that would look like. Sorry, I met with someone this week. He told me it's unbelievable story. I don't even want to believe it because this is a person who gets this to the best, I mean, to the nth degree. It's crazy. This guy's um, the COO of a company that, that has just gone public. The company, like overnight, everybody in the company becomes a millionaire. I mean, it's just like it, you were a janitor, but you have stock options because the company couldn't pay for you, and then they go public, and you're like showing up the next morning in your Mercedes, and it's like, woo! I was, and it's like everybody in the company is just, it's just like party central. Everybody's buying stuff, going on vacation. Everybody's just, I'm the COO, which is a major, major stock price, by the way. He had committed before that moment with his family. This is, and you're going to think this is the most insane thing you've ever heard in your life because I think it's insane. He committed, before this ever went public, he goes, him and his wife decided, we're going to live on the national average of income, which is roughly about $45,000 in U.S. money. That's how we're going to live. Everybody the next day shows up with their brand new cars, paper plates, all kinds of stuff on their, you know, on their, on their wife's shirt, that's nice. He shows up in a pre-Sandra Gio Mecca, determined to give away everything else beyond that $45,000. Man, is that guy money. He understands. He capped his own income at the national average, and he commutes a super far distance because it's too, he has to live in a community. And you go, how do you do that? My understanding, my, my guess, I don't know this person, is that that person started a journey a very, very long time ago in which they said, the most important stuff in our life is going to look like this. We're going to make these things a priority so that we can do these things. It's like, no matter what, we're going to, it's like this person showed great sacrifice of themselves so that other people might benefit. Uh, so I met with a, a couple this week who says, um, said, well, I got, I, this guy goes, well, I, I became a Christian. I started following Jesus right before I got married. And I'm just getting ready to talk. I'm getting ready to talk. And he goes, and as soon as we got married, she goes, we, 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 you know, she grew up in the church. And she goes, I just, I just know, want you to know we're, we're going to give, you know, money to the church. And he goes, how much? And she goes, 10%. And he goes, that is the craziest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Do you know how dumb that is? Do you know how much money? Do you know what? Now, the 10% is sort of the biblical floor. I mean, it's, not, it's a benchmark, right? It's not the floor. But he goes, do you know how much do you know, do you know much money? Do you know what we could do with that money? And I'm, and I'm looking at him going like, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. And he goes, and I'm like, not sure what to do. Because everything I say, I feel like I have to say totally poker face. He's going to look at me like approval, disapproval, smile, nod, greed. What, they're going to think he wants a jacuzzi, you know, in the Jesus shelter down below the church. And it's like, I have to like be really stone-faced. And he goes, and here's what happened. When we started giving, I started thinking about how much we were giving up, what else we could do. And he goes, what has happened to me? And I'm, again, I'm not, pro- I'm not feeding him lines because I was like, can I put you on stage to tell this? But he goes, because he's not here this week. But he goes, he goes, I started thinking about how grateful I was that I could give that much. And I'm like, you go. It's not as radical as the person who's, who's like living at 44000 or whatever it is per year. But you're a person going, I'm making this a priority, and look at how much we were able to participate to give. These are people who have an understanding about enough. They have a unique understanding about enough. The Bible isn't down on rich people, by the way. I think there's often that perception. If you were here last week, I said this. There are lots of very rich people in the Bible that got upholds for their righteousness. It's not like rich equals evil, though some, some of us tend to think that. I mean... He only is opposed to people who place other things in front of him. 
that make those things their God. He's opposed to that. But he's not opposed to rich people. What he's looking at, then we talk about generosity, then is this. How do people understand that they have enough? We read this last week, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, should be great for us. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. In other words, I said this last week, I need you to catch this again. It's really important. If you ever feel guilt, shame, or manipulation, or coercion on the part of a church leader to try to get you to give your money, that is not biblical. If you've ever felt that or are afraid, you've got, maybe you haven't been to church in a long time because you're like, they make me feel terrible for not giving. That is not biblical. It's either on you or the person who's communicating in some way has an agenda that's not biblical. Now, secondly, giving is always not pointing to joy. Always not pointing to joy. It's a sacrificial joy, but it's a joy. Now, and I said this last week, I need you to hear this again. You don't hear it enough. If you continue to come to our church, for the rest of your life and never give a dime to church, you will always be broke. Always. Okay? Now you, you might be feeling something different. I just want you to know you'll always be welcome. I don't know. I won't know. There's no, like, I don't, I don't have that knowledge. And I won't know. And I don't want to know. And that's what the admission said in the I just want you to know that. Okay? Now, I'll keep on going. Check this out. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every great work. So here's, here's what God says, or what Paul says. Give generously, and you're going to have enough. For us, the hardest thing to understand in all of our lives, and if you're, by the way, going, I don't know, I just, I hate what you're saying, and I hate what you're trying, you're trying to get, this is, I know you're, you're saying you're not being manipulative, but you're trying to get me to give, here's the deal, if you're like, still like that, just see what happens when you give to someplace else other than the church. Okay, look, I, I'm, I, I still believe this for biblical principle in your life, I believe in what the church is doing, <laughs> a lot, but if you don't, or you think this is a sham, then give your money elsewhere and see what God does in your heart, honestly. Because I want you to understand a biblical principle of abundance. Because it, it, here's what it says. You will be enriched, skip down to verse 7. You'll be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, as your, genero- uh, through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. In other words, there's this outpouring of generosity which continues this outpouring of generosity and gratefulness. Which is what God's story gets, how God's story gets told. You see, we start with an understanding. That we are curators and not owners. And yet, we have a participation in the work of God's art in the world. And we find this most frightening thing, if you were here this last week, that we're all looking for joy. The most frightening thing for this one, especially if you start talking about generosity. You see this biblical principle throughout the Bible, and it's so scary. Which is that joy doesn't often precede giving, generosity. It often comes as an outcome. And it's so scary because we look at it and we go, wait, wait, you said if we don't give unless we're feeling joyful about it. Well, there's a part of us that we have to go to understand the, how faith works is that it comes after sometimes, not before. Faith is not, sight. The, the opposite of faith is not doubt, certainty. And so we go, wow, I'm, I, I want to be absolutely certain that I'm going to get this kind of joy. And we don't know until we, it's the hardest thing, it's the most difficult thing in our life. So let me just kind of sum this up a little bit here. I want to make sure we get there. If our, if our occupation is as curators of God's earth, I told you this is going to be tough. 
if our occupation is as curators of God's, God's great earth, then how we view that stuff, there's a couple things I want you to catch, then we'll end here. It's, it's really critical. It informs the way in which we curate the art. Here's the first one is this. We have an understanding of scarcity, which means if we have an understanding of scarcity, then there is never enough. We will never get that. I mean, God, I just, if I had a little bit more, if I could pay off this, if I could buy this, and then I have, there's just never enough. Just by the way, limited resources and unlimited needs and wants, that's essentially the basis of all economics. <laughs> that's it. That people have limited resources and their needs and wants never go away. And this is what, how marketing works. This is how economics works. That people are trying to buy and consume things that they, don't, they can never have enough of. When people are like this, here are some of the things that they, that they experience. People who live in, they live in a sense of entitlement. I deserve, I should have, other people should give to me. I, why do they have and I don't have? They have jealousy and envy. These are people who have a, who have a, a they see other people as a threat. And in some way or another, they wonder, they never have the sense of contentment that they long for. It's never ending. It means that there's some kind of understanding about God that they miss because they're living in scarcity. Second is this. I think this is like most of us in this room. We have a sense about the art that it's preferred generosity. That there's a heart that wants generosity, but it's trapped in present obligation. That we go, I, I want to, but I don't know how. I really want, I understand what you're saying, this is so good. I, I, someday I can't, someday when I can, I will. But right now I can't. I understand that. I really do. The fear is that there's a sort of, sort of the, the fear or belief is that the now is absolutely so so tyrannically important to us. That this is all we can do because we, can, we can't see beyond the idea because we've made a life for ourselves and now we're kind of trapped in it a little bit. And we go, I won't make that mistake again, but it's, it's down the road. I get that. And lastly is this. If you are a curator understanding God's abundance for your existence, your life is marked by that. These are people when you go to their house, if you steal something on their carpet, they don't think that. These people, when, you, when, they, you know, when someone dings their car or something like that, they're not like, they don't turn red with rage. They just are kind of like, I don't own that. These are people who let you borrow stuff that you can't believe they let you borrow. <laughs> they're like, wow, I can borrow this, really? This, these are people who have this kind of, they, they just kind of go, whatever it is. These are people who, I've, when I was a high school pastor, I borrowed their van, their Suburban. And they're like, we know what's going to happen on this trip. Do your best. And we would do our best, and inevitably we'd bring it back with something a little bit funky, and they, they'd smell weird or something else, and they were like, so glad to be able to borrow that. They have an understanding, such a freeing understanding. I wish I had this. This lightness of it doesn't, I don't own it, so it's great. I, I don't, I don't, nothing has to own me because I don't own anything else. Wow, would that be the greatest kind of life. Because I'm not an owner. I'm just a curator. The biblical word for it is steward. Put God on display everywhere I go. There's this sacrificial joy of generosity. That's the biblical definition. That's what it, I've now told you some of these definitions. I know that some of you are like, I am never coming back. And that's okay. I hope you come back. We don't always talk about this. But I would say, if you were to kind of look at the Bible, the thing I'd say, there's basically three things the Bible spends a lot of time talking about. It is idolatry, generosity to the poor, and then just out and out, the like twin cousin of that, like we didn't talk about that, I don't know. But uh, the, the, the twin brother of that, which is also just generosity itself. I mean, it's like the three, you could basically spend all the time talking about those three things, which I would have nobody come back to church if that's all I spent talking about. 
But it is clearly critical in the Bible, and like Paul who's trying to make this point, it is so critical that we understand God's generosity and goodness to us that we might live in a sort of place of abundance. What a wonderful thing to pray for, that we would have a rich a, a life of rich abundance. I know there are questions. I know I'm going to get some emails. I hope you guys have an opportunity to talk about some of this for breakfast, for lunch, whatever. So let's pray together and ask God's blessing. Jesus, it's hard for us to understand abundance because we live in a world where we have so much scarcity. We live in the constant belief that we're already not enough. We live in an understanding that says we, don't, we can't possibly get by because we've already cashed in everything we have and we're so afraid there isn't going to be enough. We want to be providers. We want to be generous, but there isn't enough excess. And we're confronted with the scary reality, Jesus, about sacrifice. And we don't want to hear it. We want to hear something else. Jesus, would you respond? Some of us need to come forward and receive prayer from our prayer team because maybe there's a part of us that's still holding on to a sense of a, a, mis, a misguided understanding about your love, that we need to hear it spoken over us in prayer about how much you love us and how your reparation, restoration work you intend to do. And Father, we know that you have not abandoned us, that you work in us and that you love us. And you want to create us to be generous people like you who have been Father, in a moment, we're going to sing. Would you hear our prayer? Let honest and sincere prayer start to move us. We might, we might respond to you with fullness and joy, not out of obligation, but out of the abundance of your great blessing to us, Jesus. And so, Father, it's in your name we generous, self-sacrificing prayer. Amen. We're going to stand together and sing a little bit of communion together in gratitude.